If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 103 this morning. Psalm 103. Here we are at the outset of a new year. The busyness and the frenzy of the holidays are behind us. And what now? Well, for some of us, I suspect the new year is invigorating. It feels like a fresh start. New goals, new opportunities, perhaps a chance to cultivate some better habits and lifestyle choices, perhaps even more serious attention to spiritual growth. However, for so many others, the start of a new year is just like any other day. The same challenges, the same frustrations, the same realities with which we had to contend last week, they haven't magically gone away just because the calendar rolled around. They haven't gotten easier or less painful. And so while the holidays may have been a nice pause from the drudgery with which we were dealing, there it is awaiting us. After all the distraction of the relatives and traveling and baubles and tinsel has been put away. The moment has passed and the reality of living life in this fallen world is again staring us in the face. What's an ordinary Christian living an ordinary life with joys and thrills, with challenges and frustrations? What outlook should a believer adopt? One that is anchored and not subject to the ebb and flow of circumstantial stimulants. Well, Psalm 103 helps us answer precisely that question. This psalm helps us to see where enduring, enduring joy can be found. And as you scan Psalm 103, you'll notice that it's not addressed to God per se. See how it begins and see how it ends. Same way, verse 1, and there at the end of verse 22. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So this is not a prayer, strictly speaking, though it is, of course, a kind of prayer, but strictly speaking, rather, this is a kind of sermon that David is preaching to himself as he's calibrating his soul into a proper posture, where he can give thanks to God for more than mere fleeting and earthly blessings. So let's read the text, shall we? And then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Follow along as I read aloud Psalm 103. Once again, dear friends, this is God's holy word. Take care how we hear it. Of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. 
For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. Let's all pray. O Lord, would you hear our prayers now as your hungry children longing to be fed the pure spiritual milk of your word and to grow up beyond that milk unto meat. Hear us. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us and fill us and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Joy is something that we need to fight for and work at and there are all kinds of things that would threaten to rob us of it. And that is right where Psalm 103 comes in. Psalm 103 shows us where to go to find joy that is not fleeting and not temporary, but is solid and sure and God-exalting and lasting. And before we get into the meat of the text, just do notice with me a few introductory things. You'll notice who, who is to bless God. Well, David calls upon himself and actually all creation to do so. He opens it, bless the Lord, O my soul, he says, and then the angels in heaven which David calls mighty ones, and God's hosts and God's ministers, angels, are to bless him. You see that there at the end of the psalm. And all his works and all places of his dominion, anywhere that God happens to rule, which is everywhere, those are to bless him. And you see that there at the end in verses 20, 21, and 22. Well, why? Why should angels and heavenly hosts and my soul and your soul and all places of his dominion, why should we bless the Lord? Well, verse 2 tells us, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In other words, to borrow the language of that old gospel song, count your blessings, name them one by one. It's just that Holy Scripture says it even more profoundly, doesn't it? Call them to mind. Call his blessings to you, to mind. Stir worship in your soul and life by recalling and recounting the instances of God's grace to you. That's why you should worship him. That's what will stir your praise toward him. And then verses 3 through 19, the the real body, the meat of the psalm, those verses do exactly that. They list for us the dimensions and the details of God's abundant and steadfast love, those things which fuel our praise, those things which call to mind his abundant goodness toward his people. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. Let's just for a few moments trace out the ways, manner after manner, dimension after dimension, facet after facet of the ways in which God lavishes his grace upon his people. Uh, I was listening to a sermon on Psalm 103, it's been years ago now, but I loved the outline that that sermon used and I thought we'd use a similar one today. Four things for us this morning. The expanse of God's grace, the source of God's grace, the effects of God's grace, and then the certainty of God's grace. So first I want us to see the expanse, the expanse of God's grace. Put another way, 
as David rehearses the splendors of God's goodness here in this passage, we're asking the question, how wide does God's grace go? How wide is it? Well, look at verses 2 through 5. See the repetition, the repetitiveness? Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. So there's forgiveness and healing here. God's grace deals with both soul and body. Do you see that? There's life and there's death in view here. He redeems your life from the pit. That's talking about death. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Youthful energy. Strength renewed so that your vigor is like the strength of an eagle. Broad in its wingspan, soaring through the snow-capped mountains, vigilant An eagle on the hunt with sharpest vision, these birds of prey with deadly talons, some of which can carry twice their own body weight. It's a picture that David is envisioning, speaking of the eagle here, a picture of vigor and health. And so David is saying, I'm speaking of life here. This is what some of the mercies with which God visits his people. Life is in view. Death is in view. God has a hand in that. Body and soul are in view here. All are within the scope of God's grace. How far? How far is the expanse of God's grace? All his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. Life and death, body and soul, all are within the scope of his marvelous grace. I love how one commentator put it. The grace of God is comprehensive and full. Your need cannot exhaust the provision of God's grace. Your sin is never so great that his grace cannot cleanse it. Your sickness is not too severe that his grace cannot sustain you in it or deliver you from it as God wills. And when you face death, if you face it in the grip of grace, death need hold for you no fear. Close quote. The life that we live on this earth, brothers and sisters, in this mortal coil it will often threaten to overwhelm us. Some of you feel that more keenly than others. Take heart, Christian. This psalm tells us that God will save you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will guide you. He will sustain you. He will deliver you. He will heal you. He will bring you home to glory in the end. Death will not hold you, and life will not overcome you. You risk nothing and you gain everything by trusting yourself wholly to the grace of God. You risk nothing and you gain everything by entrusting yourself to his marvelous grace. The expanse of grace, David says, is all-encompassing, dealing with your body and soul, dealing with you in life and in death. So that's the first thing, the expanse of God's grace. But then secondly, we want to consider the source of God's grace. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. You see, for Old Testament Israel, and this is something we've highlighted recently as we've been studying through the book of Exodus together, particularly in our evening uh, worship services. But for Old Testament Israel, Exodus is their defining moment as a people. That is their archetypal 
conscious, conscience-shaping event. Think of it like this. If July 4th, 1776 and the Declaration of Independence, if that's our defining moment, our inaugural moment as an American nation, that's what the exodus is for Israel. And here, David is reflecting on that great salvific moment in salvation history when God rescued his people from Egyptian slavery. In verses 6 and 7, he's again preaching to himself, reminding himself of how the Lord acted in justice and acted in righteousness for his oppressed people. And there he says, he showed his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel when he brought them out by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm and rescued them from Egyptian slavery and bondage. And in the story of Exodus, God explains to Moses why he would do such a thing. In Exodus, the Exodus, the great event which becomes the major biblical paradigm for salvation until we get to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great reference point by which God's people understand deliverance and redemption, God explains in Exodus 34, verse 6, why he acts to save, why he does what he does. And David is quoting Exodus 34, verse 6. He's quoting from it here in Psalm 103, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He is a God who loves to save. That's who he is. That's why he does what he does. It is intrinsic to his character, to his very being. I'm sure I I told this story before, but... Years ago, when I was a seminary student, I was at the dentist, waiting my turn, minding my own business, when the man next to me decided to strike up a conversation. What do you do? Oh, I'm a retired businessman. What do you do? Well, I'm a seminary student. What's that? Well, that means I'm studying to be a a Presbyterian minister. Ah, what do you think God is, he says. What do you think, sir? And he gave his own answer first. Now, to him, God was something like the power of of life that bonds and binds all things together in the universe, something far more akin to the Force in Star Wars than anything else. And then the poor man made the unfortunate mistake of asking what the seminary student thought about God. Well, I am a Presbyterian, and I'm very thankful for our catechism. I'm not good at thinking on my feet in the spur of the moment, and I don't trust my mind to come up with a biblical orthodox answer to such a massive question like, what is God? I'm shooting from the hip like that. What tends to come out is a babbling, incoherent mess. So I defaulted to the catechism to provide a short, true, and sound answer. Well, sir, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then drawing on the language of the creeds and the larger catechism, and this God, sir, exists as one God in three persons, co-eternal, co-equal, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, the poor man suddenly became fascinated with his shoelaces at that point (laughs) until he was mercifully rescued by the hygienist calling him away. I've never seen a man run towards a hygienist as fast as that man did that morning. Well, King David or any other Old Testament Israelite would not have given us quite that answer as the catechism, but if you, would, but if you were to ask them, I think they may recite to you Psalm 103, verse 8. What is God? This is the Old Testament catechism answer. God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's the root. There's the source of God's grace. Why does God delight 
to rescue and ransom his people from bondage. Because this is who he is. Do you see how David is thinking as effectively as he says, see what God has done. This is who he is. And this is who he still is. And we still have such a God now and forever. Oh, we need to do the same, brothers and sisters. And from our distinct, glorious vantage point, we need to do much the same. You see, we don't stand merely as the recipients of saving mercy, having been ransomed from the slavery of wicked Pharaoh like Israel. No, no. Great David's greater son has come to redeem us from bondage to sin and death and hell and the grave. He has brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. The lamb of Passover may have staved off the angel of death for Israel, but for us, the recipients of his matchless mercy, the lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world in the cross of Jesus Christ so that we can say, death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? It's swallowed up so that we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me, who like we, his praise should sing. Oh, we need to do that. There are endless reasons, endless legitimate reasons, friends, for sorrow and for melancholy and for frustration, anger even, and grumbling perhaps in this life. Bless the Lord, O my soul. How? When all seems dark and discouraging. Well, friends, the truth is you base it not on fleeting, ephemeral, unreliable, and mutable things such as feelings, circumstances, or emotions, or sensations. No, you do it by fueling your praise from something eternal, unchangeable, immutable, constant and unwavering. David recounted the Exodus to himself because there he sees the love of God, the ransoming love of God on display, and likewise we must recount Calvary to ourselves. Now I know some of you here in our congregation feel your wretchedness very keenly. You've told me as much. Your struggles with sin, your dealings with grief, doubt. You deem yourselves filthy, unable to be loved. Others of you perhaps have kept God's arm, or rather you've kept God at arm's length for a long, long time. Well, friends, I would urge you this day, as I urge all of us, go and look and look again to the cross of Calvary. Robert Murray McShane was known to say, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus, and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. This is your God, brothers and sisters. See his love for his people. This is who he is. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. That's what he's like, abounding in mercy. There's no reason. There's no reason to run from him. You have no legitimate onus to run from him, and you have every reason to run to him in Christ, the source of God's grace. That's the second thing. His character, his being, his very self. But then thirdly, we need to see the effects of God's grace. The effects of God's grace. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far does the steadfast love of God go? What's its extent? You see David's answer? As high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. And, And the metric here, the measuring rod, the maybe the foil perhaps, is our sin particularly in this section of the psalm. The good news makes no sense apart from the bad news. And the vast expanse of God's grace only makes sense when you measure it against and contrast it against the units of our heinous sin. Do you see the synonyms that David piles up for sin? He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Sins of all sorts, all kinds of sin, of every description, every kind, can find pardon through the grace of God. If if you can somehow measure, if you can somehow measure the distance between east and west, if you could somehow calculate and compute the mileage between earth and heaven, then you might begin to get a sense of the measure of God's love for his people. The point being... You can't. It is infinitely incalculable. David is saying the steadfast love of God, the grace of God is vast, unmeasured, boundless. It's beyond tracing out. And this is good news for vile sinners like me and like you. Because here in Psalm 103, David is effectively saying, there is no sin so heinous. There is no deed so wicked. No guilt so heavy, no shame so severe for which God cannot provide pardon and healing and cleansing. There is no burden of guilt so weighty that it cannot be removed by this gracious Lord. You'll notice, friends, that it says there in verse 10, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As we've already discussed, this is precisely what great David's greater son, our Lord Jesus, accomplished for his people at Calvary. And there are some of you who live under that weight of shame and guilt. Now, you've come to Christ. You've trusted in him. You've you've repented of your sin. And still, still, some of you have walked with Christ for months. Some of you have walked with Christ for years. And still, you wander around with this burden of guilt and shame. It, it, may, it may, for some folks, even take the form of a kind of quiet self-hatred. And some of the, I've spoken with some of you. You've admitted that your thinking has become twisted, and you believe that you should not allow yourself to feel forgiven until you have sufficiently wallowed in misery. Unless I can really, 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 really feel ashamed, I have no right to really, really believe that I'm forgiven. Friends, would you believe me if I told you that that was a quiet form of works righteousness? Trying to leverage your own emotional state of despondency to then qualify yourself to receive the grace of God. To to somehow make ourselves acceptable, to somehow do something of our own, to, to then feel worthy. If that is you, dear friend, you simply must stop that and rather believe the gospel not the warped, clever, subtle lies of your mind and heart. Because here's the thing, as one commentator pointed out, if you're living a life of willful, purposeful rebellion against God, you should feel shame. 
The sting of a guilty conscience is actually a thing of grace in those moments. If you feel guilty because of a sin that you're flagrantly committing, you should feel guilty. That is a good thing. But once you have turned in repentance and faith, turned from sin, turned toward Christ, your burden is gone. It's gone. Isn't that what remove means? So far does he remove our transgressions from us. You come to faith in Christ. You come to faith in this God of steadfast love. You are forgiven. You are clean. You are pardoned. There is therefore in a few weeks or in some years to come no condemnation for those in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the cross we are forgiven and reconciled to God. At the cross, your transgressions are removed as far as east is from west. Believe that, Christian. Believe with all your heart and all your soul and mind and strength. And that's the third thing. So the expanse of God's grace, the source of God's grace, the effects of God's grace, and then fourthly, the certainty of God's grace. Look at verses 13 through 19. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. You'll notice in this section that David notes the compassion of God. He is an ideal, perfect father. Unlike earthly fathers, even the best of fathers are filled with inconsistencies. We are filled with failures and sin, but not the Lord. A perfect father, full of compassion. Now, David notes God's character of compassion because he's about to highlight our fragility. Not, not emotional fragility, not, not sensitivity, but rather our mortality, that kind of fragility. How fleeting our lives really are, especially in light of eternity and in contrast with the solid, eternal weightiness that is God. Fading life, eternal love. Fading life, eternal love. That's how one Old Testament scholar titled this section of the psalm. David is saying that it is absolutely incredible that God is a God of compassion because the objects of his compassion, the objects on which his compassion is exercised, are these frail crumbly, weak, sinful beings. He describes us mortals as dust, verse 14, grass, verse 15, a flower of the field. Imagine David's context, a sharp, scorching wind in the peak of a hot Middle Eastern summer, and that flower withers and dies. That's it. That's us. David is saying, that's your life. That's a very unpopular image. It's not terribly positive and encouraging. It flies in the face of a culture that frankly refuses to face and grapple with the reality of our immortality. Right? We, 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 as a society, we don't like to think about death. We avoid it. We sanitize it. We cater to a youth culture mentality. We like to delude ourselves that for all of us, every single one of us, our best days are always yet to come. No reality check, says David. Our lives are fleeting. Yes, dust, grass, a flower, something incredibly delicate and temporary, a summer blossom that soon withers. But, verse 17, 
in comparison to such fragility and temporality. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. See, the steadfast love of the Lord sounds from eternity past to eternity future and it never ceases. It doesn't expire because of a blast of wind or a hot sun. His throne is in the heavens, the realm of eternity, transcendence and sovereignty and stability far over this ephemeral fleeting realm. He rules over all. And not only is he powerful and mighty and able to control, not only is he a a source of raw strength, unchallenged dominion and might, but he is the one whose disposition toward his people is one of love and compassion. For you see, a river of life flows from that throne, Scripture tells us. Revelation 22. Streams of mercy never ceasing, which roll current upon current upon current of grace upon his children and his children's children. So it's the new year. Make the most of every moment we hear. Every day, they say. Yeah, yeah, all right, fine, as far as that goes. Celebrate the good gifts that God has given you. Yes, Invest in those around you, the people whom God has providentially placed in your life. Yes, be faithful to your callings, your duties, your vocations, as God has given them to you. Yes, amen. But be sure, time is short. All flesh is as grass. Only steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting, flowing out from the grace of God on high. And it is only to be found in the king who is seated there, namely King Jesus. You know, we're here in Psalm 103, way back earlier in the Psalms. Psalm 2 gives us that greatest admonition. It's a kind of John 3.16 for the Old Testament. Kiss the Son, lest He become angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. That's Psalm 2. Come and bow before King Jesus. Because there, in Him, you will find steadfast love and grace upon grace. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. But it's infinitely, it's infinitely available to you in Him. That's where you will find solid joys and lasting treasures, the kind that none but Zion's children know. The grace of God is utterly and unendingly reliable. It is steadfast and it is from everlasting to everlasting. Friends, depend upon it. Depend on it, depend on it. King David wants us to recalibrate our souls by reminding and rehearsing and ruminating and meditating on the truth of God, our God, who he is and what he's done. In short, we ought to preach the gospel to ourselves, to fight for everlasting joy and to fight for everlasting satisfaction in him. Christian believer, know how much you are loved in Christ, ransomed, Healed, restored, forgiven. And as you drink in that realization anew, or maybe even for the first time, won't you come with thanks and like the psalmist, won't that be the song on all of our lips? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we ask that you would teach us from our inmost being in gratitude for who you are and for what you've done for us. Lord, anchor our souls, anchor our faith and our hope there. 
on the surety of yourself, on the constancy of your grace, the eternity of your character. And truly, Lord God, help us to fight for joy, for everlasting satisfaction in you, even as we know that all our hope on Christ is founded. Amen.